Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. So people who know Rex Tillerson uh, say that you can't really know or understand him without understanding the Boy Scout part of him. He's a former Eagle Scout whose parents met at a Boy Scout camp sing-along, whose father worked full-time for the Boy Scouts for like four decades. Uh, Tillerson, who is, of course, Donald Trump's probable uh, Secretary of State, still heavily involved in the Boy Scouts and, interestingly, was one of the leaders of the move to finally change the uh, policy on gay scouts and then kind of market it to the local councils. He felt that was an important step for them to take. Uh, when Tillerson calls up his friend Ross Perot, also a former Eagle, Eagle Scout, apparently it's to talk about scouting, not about uh, anything else. Uh, and if Tillerson is indeed confirmed as Secretary of State, he will represent a fusion of federal power and enthusiasm for the Boy Scouts, matched only by Robert Gates, who was president of the Boy Scouts of America at one point, and uh, in addition, of course, to having been director of the CIA and Secretary of Defense. Uh, Rick Perry is also a former Eagle Scout, so is Jeff Sessions, so that means the Trump probable cabinet will include at least three Eagle Scouts. There might even be one that I'm not aware of. So uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the Boy Scouts today. We're going to talk a lot about the Boy Scouts today. In studio with me are Rashid Ali, a Scoutmaster for uh, Troop 8 in Hartford. Uh, Brad Mead is Scoutmaster of Troop 175 in Simsbury. Uh, And uh, joining us here in the first segment, uh, we'll be getting to him in just a second, uh, is the author of A History of the Boy Scouts. Uh, Benjamin Jordan is a professor of history at Christian Brothers University and the author of Modern Manhood and the Boy Scouts of America. So, um, you know, since I, I began by uh, talking about Eagle Scouts and the Eagle Scouts who will probably be in, in the next U.S. cabinet, um, maybe uh, each of you, uh, Brad, maybe you can get us started here. Um, I mean, what, what do you have to do to be an Eagle Scout? Well, the Eagle Scout rank starts by uh, joining Scouts, and then you go through a whole series of ranks and you earn a series of merit badges. And then you also end up doing a rather large project, a very big what we call Eagle Project. And in about six, seven years, if you do all those things, you get to be an Eagle Scout. And interesting enough, once you become an Eagle Scout, you're always an Eagle Scout. And that means you always refer to it in the present tense. So I am an Eagle Scout. Mm -hmm. I'm not was an Eagle Scout. I am an Eagle Scout. All the other ranks you refer to in the past. Right. It's like an Olympian. Olympians it's, are always Olympians, exactly. right? Exactly. So, um, Rashid Ali, um, uh, I read one statistic that 6% uh, of all eligible Boy Scouts get to be Eagle Scouts. Actually, that number's been trending up. I think the uh, all-time historic a- average, if you put them all together, is probably closer to 2%. Uh, but uh, there are more Eagle Scouts as a percentage of Boy Scouts these days. What, what distinguishes the person who manages to get to be an Eagle Scout from the other 94%? What qualities does, is that person like? Likely to have a lot of that is about consistency and dedication, um, being able to kind of be self-taught, be able to push yourself to to limit, to be able to reach out and find opportunities, to be able to smile in the face of, of adversity. There's a lot of challenges to to achieve all the merit badges and all the service projects that are necessary to become an Eagle Scout, as well as being able to have an open heart to be able to have care and compassion for your community and society enough to 
create these projects that are going to make a, a difference for not just your home or your family or your troop, but your community. So, Brad, is it, I mean, you know, I, I think when people think about Boy Scouts, if they don't know too much about the Boy Scouts or if, like me, their involvement with the Boy Scouts ended prior to 1970, uh, they probably are thinking, so you can build a campfire, you know, and you know lots of knots. Um, I, I'm sensing that, although probably that is true of an Eagle Scout, uh, that he can build a campfire and he, can, he knows plenty of things about knots, that really being an Eagle Scout is uh, more than that. And a lot of it is stuff that doesn't necessarily happen out in the woods. Uh, that's true. A lot of it's about character. A lot of it's about leadership. A lot. Of, one of the things that we do in scouting better than almost anywhere else is we teach leadership, and we teach it to kids that are teenagers. Uh, and that's not something that they typically find in any other part of their life. Uh, so they will go ahead, and at the age of 12 or 13, they'll be in charge of a patrol, and a patrol might be six or seven or eight kids that are 10 years old, and they will lead them into the woods. Uh, whenever we go out into the woods, we go out into an uncertain environment. And um, and we we promise the parents we'll bring them all home. Uh, we don't promise we'll bring them home clean or happy, but we promise we'll bring them home. And so we have to go through a lot of surprises that might occur in the in the woods. And uh, so it is about building fires, but it's also about, uh, as Rashid said, overcoming <laughs> adversity and making sure that if it's raining for two days in a row, you you, you have to deal with it. You can't just bail out. You know, Rashid, it's interesting also that I don't know. No matter how much society changes, no matter uh, how uh, hip and urbane we get. If you see that on somebody's resume, I mean, it sort of means something still. I mean, obviously it means something to you guys. You're heavily involved in the scouts. But I think the average person looking at that, you know, in the bio of almost anybody, um, you sort of see that and you go, oh, Eagle Scout. And sometimes it's like you look at, you know, like Michael Moore is an Eagle Scout. And you think, well, that's sort of weird. <laughs> Michael Moore is an Eagle Scout. He's so transgressive and rejecting of authority. And sometimes you think, oh, well, yeah, it sort of makes sense that he's an Eagle Scout. But it always means something, right? Absolutely. I am an architect at Travelers, and I've had colleagues that have told me that they've gotten jobs because of that being on their resume. Communi uh, just networking and communicating with other colleagues about scouting has, has opened doors, has opened networks, has just started the small talk, the necessary to be able to move a project along. So it's, it's, a, it's a fundamental part of being able to, to be successful. As, as a millennial myself, I find it very useful. Yeah. Actually, I was talking to somebody today who uh, had a career in management who was telling me that, you know, sort of on the other end of the spectrum, uh, she was dealing with a guy who was kind of a screw-up as an employee. And then she was sort of looking at his resume, and she said, wait a minute, he's an, he was an Eagle Scout. He can't be a total screw-up. He was an Eagle Scout. And she started to instruct her middle management people to work with him in a different way. And it turned out yeah, that was true, that actually he hadn't been functioning properly within in the department, but there were all kinds of uh, latent abilities and senses of responsibility that she could uh, activate and maximize and, and get a better performance out of him. So the fact that he was an Eagle Scout, even though he wasn't flying high at that moment, actually worked in his behalf too. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the history of this. And as I said before, uh, to do that, we have with us Dr. Benjamin Jordan, professor of history at Christian Brothers University and the author of Modern Manhood and the Boy Scouts of America. Oh, welcome to this conversation. Uh, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. So we say Boy Scouts of America. It's right in the title of your book. But the story of the Boy Scouts doesn't really start in America, right? It starts in Britain with a man a man named Lord Baden-Powell. Tell us about him. Uh, yes. Uh, so he's the kind of the British military hero um, of the imperial British forces in South Africa and India and places like this. 
and he was concerned that city boys were getting too soft uh, to train for the military, and they weren't kind of coming in prepared to be good um, stalwart citizens of the British Empire. So he started Boy Scouting, ad adapting some kind of idea, some earlier ideas from some earlier organizations in America uh, to form the uh, Boy Scouts there in England, 1907, 1908. But the American version quickly, I argue, come, becomes something quite different and much more civilian and community and citizenship-oriented than the kind of military orientation of, of Baden-Powell's original British program. And we developed that in 1910. By 1911-12, it's taking on kind of a different form, really, uh, than, than British scouting and what Baden-Powell originally had in mind, I argue. Yeah, so there's a, there's a story that's, uh, I think, probably apocryphal, uh, or maybe 50% apocryphal, about this uh, newspaper man uh, and uh, and businessman. I guess he's over in London. He's lost in the fog, and uh, and a Boy Scout, a British Boy a British Scout, finds him and walks him to his destination, and he wants to know well, who this person is, and he wants to tip this person, and the Scout goes, oh, no, I can't accept tips. This is part of my duty, part of my civic duty, and suddenly he's very intrigued by this, and he takes this back to the United States. We don't know whether that's true or not, and I think there's reasons to suppose it's not entirely true, but, but we do know anyway that that notion of having this kind of civilian core uh, of young men who, who would have some kind of newly forged respect for the notion of civic duty, that was apparently one of the real things that was importable from England, right? Uh, yes, quite so, but just less military in tone overall. Of course, there were scoutmasters who, who in America might have paid more attention to that, and there were also alternative organizations who tended to be uh, either sectarian or, or narrow or more military, that, but the Boy Scouts of America uh, came to articulate itself and, and grow and, and kind of outshine and uh, subsume all these other rival organizations because they were more civilian and community-oriented. So what you all spoke about earlier about uh, the Eagle Scout, uh, community service being a kind of a key element of that, uh, the good turn to the community on the individual level and on the big troop level, uh, that has been kind of a consistent uh, uh, theme and, and focus of Scout programming, I would say, from, from 1910 here in America. And, and you know, uh, definitely some overlap with British scouting and their, what they meant by service, but, but more civilian and more community and less military in tone, I would argue. You know, the, the other thing that seems to be um, a significant and, and basically unchanging aspect of this uh, as the Boy Scouts face other aspects of social change, and we'll talk about those, the one thing that didn't change was this notion of religion, that in fact that religious faith was important, uh, that in fact the Boy Scouts are not really comfortable with someone who, at least as a matter of written policy, they're not really comfortable with a scout who uh, does not have any religious faith or any religious beliefs at all. Atheists and agnostics don't seem to fit the mold. Um, actually, in 2016, this year, the Boy Scouts actually increased their emphasis on religion, uh, putting through a new set of requirements uh, as Boy Scouts move through the ranks, that at each move through the ranks, one of the things they're required to do is tell about their duty to God at each rank. Um, so as a historian of this group, what do you make of that? I mean, what do you make of the religious aspect of this? How do you fit this in to the historical narrative of the organization? Yes, and there's other historians who've written about this, Jay Meckling, David McLeod as well, about early scouting. But what strikes me and what I present in my uh, book, the second half of my book, is how at, for the time period in which uh, the Boy Scouts of America originated in 19, the 1910s and 1920s, how very liberal and progressive and inclusive they were of people of different faiths. 
not that they were strong advocates or supporters of atheists, but that wasn't really their concern. What they were known for and drew controversy for from more conservative groups was including Catholics, including Jews, including Mormons, groups that at the time were you know, on the margins uh, of society, were mistreated, were discriminated against, and scouting uh, Boy Scouts of America went out of their way to include those groups, to set up special committees, to help them form their own scout programs, to form their own troops. So what I'm struck with in the teens and 20s is not so much the kind of atheist story, but really the inclusiveness of their religious uh, purview and scope and the number of churches and synagogues and a wide range of religions who form their own troops and use scouting as their model for teaching young men citizenship and community along with their different respective faiths. So that's what really strikes me about uh, the early history of religion and scouting is, is really a different kind of a, a more inclusive story, really. Um, you know, Rashid, I want to throw this over to you for a second, uh, just because, you know, another aspect of this, of the history of the Boy Scouts, is that uh, particularly in the first half of the 20th century, uh, control was pretty much left at the level of local councils. And so you had a, a wide range of approaches to integration. Troops in the north, obviously, were a little bit more likely to be racially integrated. Down in the south, uh, there were all kinds of things going on. There were troops where uh, African-American uh, scouts could be in the troop but not wear a uniform or had to wait longer to wear a uniform. There were segregated troops troops, there are all kinds of things going on, you know, moving up into maybe even the 1940s. uh, And then we started to see some change. But, you know, even I was a Boy Scout, you know, (laughs) <laughs> like a really long time ago. Uh, and I rem- I actually went and found a picture of my Boy Scout handbook. And on the cover was like a bunch of white kids. Uh, and and I, obviously you're do- you're running a Boy Scout troop uh, in, in Hartford. Um, so w- how does that work today? What, what do Boy Scouts now have to offer to potential Scouts of color? I mean, you've been through the Scouts yourself. And so for a person of color, what do the Scouts offer? So historically it has been predom- predominantly white. Um, even when I was a child, uh, I was Muslim and I went to a Catholic school and all the other children were white. And that was a, a point of uh, challenge for me, trying mm-hmm. to identify with the brotherhood and so forth. Um, and so when I started the Troop 8 in Hartford, Connecticut, I wanted to focus on heritage and culture. Having gone to Howard University in Washington, D.C., I had a wealth of experience about African-American culture to be able to bring to the table. So when we look at our troops specifically, and that's how I tried to implement it for Hartford, uh, we don't always call ourselves Boy Scouts or Cub Scouts. Our, our Cub Scouts, those 10 and under, we call them 2nd Battalion Buffalo Soldiers. The first, <laughs> the like first, the uh, Boy Scout age, which is 11 to 18, we call them 1st Battalion Buffalo Soldiers. And then the 14 to 21, which is traditionally Adventure Scouts, we call them Tuskegee Airmen. And I make sure that they understand the awareness of of those, of that heritage, of the things that those people have done throughout time to to build the the uh, fabric of American society that we have today, and that ties all of the scouts I have together. And I, I try and emphasize that for scouts that are from uh, Puerto Rico that are in my troop, or scouts that are from Kenya or Senegal, Sierra Leone, and all of these different places to to make sure that they have a good sense of heritage. That's the difference that I think we have in our troop. You know, um, as I was reading uh, about the history of the Boy Scouts today, Dr. Benjamin Jordan, um, one of the things that seemed to me was that I didn't say the name of the guy who's in that semi-apocryphal story. His name is W.B. Uh, Boyce. He comes over and uh, and really kind of launches the Boy Scouts, but then steps away. And it seemed as though 
his vision really was like everybody, all races, creeds, and colors. Just get everybody together in the Boy Scouts. And but you know, one of those th- it's one of those things where the people who inherit that leadership over time interpret the mission of the Scouts maybe differently from decade to decade. Is that what you found? Well, uh, again, relative to their time, uh, I would call them more liberal and progressive and inclusive than most other institutions in American society at that time in the teens and 20s. Their policy was that they would let the local council decide, which, as you said, in the southeast might, might mean that they're excluded or can't wear uniforms or can't come to the same camp. Uh, but that did mean that in other places like Chicago, like New York City, you would find African-American troops or even mixed-race troops, which they called cosmopolitan troops, which was you know, pretty cutting edge for 1914 to have uh, an African-American, Asian-American, Italian-American, uh, Anglo-American, like all in the same troop, all camping together, all serving together. That was pretty um, – pretty heady stuff back in 1914. Uh, They did move in the mid-1920s toward actually pushing the Southern Councils. It was actually from my hometown of Memphis. uh, The Boy Scout founder here, um, Bolton Smith, pushed the National Council to ask for a grant from the Rockefeller Foundation, like what we call today about a million-dollar grant uh, in today's monies, to start an interracial service in the mid-1920s that pushed the local Southern Councils to start African-American troops, and they were gradually successful. Many of them were segregated, like you said, to the 1940s or 50s, but to even allow them to be members and wear the uniforms and even go to a scout camp and and be a scout was pretty – pretty liberal stuff, I would say, for the 1920s. And then they moved on to Native Americans on reservations in the late 20s and and so forth. So um, again, I see a more liberal and inclusive tradition and heritage to scouting in in those earlier decades relative to broader American society. You know, Brad, as you look at uh, your role as a scoutmaster, it seems as though the Boy Scouts are always on this very interesting knife's edge. You know, on the one hand, one of the attractions of the Boy Scouts and maybe the attraction for a parent to maybe want uh, a child to be in, in the Boy Scouts is kind of a sense of traditional values, a, a sense that of of a kind of um, attention to duty and manners and, and, and responsibility uh, that... Um, that isn't maybe available in a lot of other places today. On the other hand, there's a there's a lot of pressure on any organization to live in the 21st century. Do you do you feel that tension? Those those kinds of two things uh, as a as a scoutmaster. Not not so much here in the Northeast. Um, the Northeast ten generally gets ahead of the trends that you see in society. And so we've had our, – our council has had a non-discriminatory policy for well over 15 years. So mm-hmm. we were way ahead of the national organization uh, on all those issues. Uh, I, no, I think parents put their kids in scouting because they like the traditional values, and they also like their kids associating with other kids who are dealing with those traditional values. Um, and that's sometimes a hard peer group to find. And we see that a lot. We have 80 kids in our troop, and uh, when a young 10-year-old comes in and joins scouting, he's suddenly got 70 or 60 older brothers. And these are the types of kids that you, you want your kids hanging around with. And uh, so I, I, I think that was true 30 years ago. I think it's true today. So at the national level, there were two big changes in recent history. In 2013, uh, the admission of um, of gay Boy Scouts. In 2015, uh, the same inclusive policy extended to adult leaders. Let's hear uh, one of the people that I mentioned earlier, Robert Gates, former director of the CIA, f- former secretary of defense, and at this point, uh, Boy Scouts, uh, at the time of this, uh, Boy Scouts uh, president, national president. 
president of the Boy Scouts of America. Um, let's uh, hear him uh, announcing this change. As I said during our national annual meeting in May, due to the social, political, and legal changes taking place in our country and in our movement, I did not believe the adult leadership policy could be sustained. Any effort to do so was inevitably going to result in simultaneous legal battles in multiple jurisdictions and at staggering cost. The best way to allow BSA to continue to focus on its mission and preserve its core values was to address the issue and set our own course. And that's what we've done. On Monday, July 27th, the National Executive Board ratified a resolution removing the national restriction on openly gay leaders and employees. This means chartered organizations will continue to select their own adult leaders. Religious chartered organizations may continue to use religious beliefs as a criterion for selecting adult leaders, including in matters of sexuality. No youth may be denied membership to our organization on the basis of sexual orientation alone. And no council can deny a charter to a unit that is following the beliefs of its religious chartering organization. So, you know, obviously change is a constant. We know that change is a constant historically. So, Dr. Benjamin Jordan, as you look at this organization, I mean, the word manhood, modern manhood is in the, uh, is in the title of your book. Um, is there's this kind of way in which our notions of manhood change a little bit. Certain things don't change. Certain things do. The Boy Scouts have had to adjust to that in, in lots of different ways. And here in Connecticut uh, in the 1970s, we had, I think, the first kind of um, uh, debate uh, occasioning a national debate about women as scoutmasters, a woman named Catherine Pollard in uh, Milford. There, was no, there were no men who wanted to be scoutmasters. She stepped in. The BSA initially wasn't that comfortable with it. I think by 1988, they had declared her the first uh, woman scoutmaster, although that went up in the courts for a while. Is this just sort of the, uh, the, the reality is that every five years or so, there's going to be another national conversation about this, of which the Boy Scouts will be a, a part, Dr. Jordan? Uh, about uh, membership and, and leadership, do you mean? Yeah, or about what manhood, changing ideas about manhood. I mean, look, there were a lot of scout leaders in, you know, I mean, 20, 30, 40 years ago who would not have been comfortable with the notion of a gay Boy Scout. That just didn't conform to, you know, a lot of people's ideas of what what mo- modern manhood should strive to be. I think now we're a little bit more comfortable with that notion that you can embody manhood perfectly and still be gay. It's interesting that, you know, I, I get this question when I come and speak about my book to different uh, groups, uh, and there's relative silence in my own book in the teens and 20s about uh, the kind of gay scout and scout leader question. It's because it wasn't really discussed, at least in any kind of record or uh, public discourse that I can find. Uh, in, in the teens and 20s, they actually didn't really discuss sexuality, sex, intimacy, dating type issues at all, they thought it's best not to even bring up such topics with 12, 13, 14-year-olds that were the kind of core of the organization back then. They didn't have such developed younger and older boy programs back then. So their idea was we, we should just avoid talking about the issue altogether. Otherwise, they'll get the wrong idea and start doing these things. Uh, so there's relative silence in the teens and 20s about this issue. So this, you know, of course, is a much more recent 1960s, 70s, 80s type of, type of issue. Um, but I think I think the, the core values, um, I, I would think, have been relatively consistent. You know, my book talks about character, citizenship, community involvement, and, uh, you know, a 
conservation of the environment as being the cores that they had worked out by the 19-teens, I would think that that's relatively consistent what those values are, whether or not certain people kind of belong in the organization or belong in particular troops seems to be the, the issue that kind of keeps coming under debate. But it seems like there's gradually kind of a broadening and opening of, of the Boy Scout membership, um, you know, as we've seen, and as you pointed out here in the recent uh, last 10 years or so. All right. Listen, first of all, it's been great to talk to you about the early history of the Boy Scouts. We're going to grab a break. We're going to talk more in the next segment about what the Boy Scouts actually do these days, uh, what it means, what the life inside a typical Boy Scout troop, if there is such a thing, would be. All right, so we're back. We're talking about the Boy Scouts. One reason that I was very intrigued to talk about the Boy Scouts, I mean, yeah, as I said before, I got one wrong, by the way. Bill Gates was not an Eagle Scout. His father was an Eagle Scout. His father was named Bill, so that's confusing. But um, but Steven Spielberg was, and so was Michael Bloomberg, Michael Moore, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, John Tesh, David Lynch, the biologist E.O. Wilson, sex researcher Alfred Kinsey, my favorite, Scientology founder L. Ron Hubbard, uh, and yeah, Robert Gates uh, we talked about. And then there's three um, Eagle Scouts in uh, in the Trump cabinet. So the minimum, I mean, I don't, we don't even know everybody in the cabinet yet anyway, um, but minimum three Eagle Scouts. So including uh, Rex Tillerson, who's about as avid and enthusiastic uh, a scout uh, as there can be. He's been very heavily involved in the organization all his life. So, you know, we want to know a little bit more about this. So Rashid uh, Ali is Scout Master of Troop 8 in Hartford. Brad Mead is Scout Master of Troop 175 in Simsbury. Um, we want to talk a little bit more about what's what life is like inside uh, each of your troops. So um, I, I'll start with you, uh, Brad like, I don't know, over the course of an average month, like what, what happens in your troop? What do people actually do? Well, we're, we're a pretty active troop. We've, uh, we take our guys literally all over the world. We've been up Kilimanjaro twice. We've been deep into the Amazon j- jungle doing uh, monkey census counting in a part of the jungle that had never been visited by humans before. Wow. We've been down the, uh, uh, Zim, uh, the Zambezi River uh, next uh, April, we'll be going down to Cuba. We'll be the first scout troop down into Cuba, and uh, and this uh, this summer we will have thirty of us will sail through the Fifi Islands in Thailand. Uh, so scouting's changed a little bit. We do it a little. Yeah, we we mainly a, play dodgeball, so I kind <laughs> yeah. of feel like I want to be in your troop. Yeah. But we do we do a lot of the uh, we do a lot of the regular camping and, uh, issues. But we also what what we found is that teenage boys in particular really want to find out how good they are. They want to measure themselves, and so we do a lot of things that are based on kind of Navy SEAL and U.S. Army Ranger types of programs. So we'll put them into a 24-hour odyssey where they have to build rafts and go across a cold lake. Uh, They have to find their food. They have to deploy in different ways in order to um, uh, not get captured. And so we do a lot of things that become both fun and uh, really develop the leadership talents of 14-, 15-, and 16-year-olds. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's exciting. And if we can get our guys to go back to school on Monday morning and say, hey, this is what we did this weekend, and three of their friends say, hey, I want to come to your next Thursday meeting and join, then we, then we think we've got a good program. And Rashid, tell me about, uh, about your troop. It's in Hartford. I'm guessing it's probably uh, different and similar. <laughs> yeah, we're quite different and quite similar. So in Hartford, uh, we have a, lar- a larger troop for a new troop. We're about two years old. And right now we're focusing largely on behavioral, 
understanding um, the role that we fit together, the bonds, the brotherhood, uh, making sure that the scouts can understand what it is to have compassion for humanity and maintaining family values, advocating for your community and things like that. So in order to do that, we have a number of events. We meet every week on Saturdays. And the first week, we'll visit with the elderly and work on our storytelling program. So we'll tell the elderly about our trips that we went to D.C. or to Philly. Um, and we'll listen to stories from our pioneers as they tell us um, stories from the past and our heritage and our, and our culture. Uh, the next week, we'll usually go camping. That's when we go camping. Uh, we Once a month, we go... I mean, one month we'll go somewhere in Connecticut, and then the next month we'll go outside of Connecticut to show them what it's like outside of out of out of their state and out of their home. Uh, then we'll go on a hike, five to ten mile hike, and then the last month we'll go swimming so that they can all learn how to swim, uh, learn different uh, physical activities. Meanwhile, while doing all of this, I take them to the side and make sure that they learn their merit badges, get their ranks up, and they pers- they progress through this through the system. So you know, and I think. For urban kids, I mean, we, I just know this from, my, from reporting and from some of the stuff that's come out in some of the educational uh, trials. Urban kids, a lot of times, don't get exposed to, like, the stuff that you just described. I mean, chillingly, I think it was in the Chef versus O'Neill uh, testimony, there was a, a description of a group of kids from one of the North End schools who were on some kind of field trip in a bus, and they all gasped and applauded as they crossed the Connecticut River because most of them had never seen the Connecticut River. I mean, they, they lived not that far from it, but they just hadn't. So the kind of thing that you're talking about, uh, you know, for, for some kinds of kids, that's got to be amazing to, to get out in the woods and have the chance to learn how to swim and stuff like that. Yeah, it's, it's good for them to be able to get out. But the, the, the meat of the matter is that they learn how to bond and they learn how to behave and they learn how to interact with each other. Because there's, there's a lot of challenges that you'll face in Hartford that you may not face in some of the suburbs that they have to be able to overcome. And if they're going to be able to rise and, and graduate high school and move on to college and find careers, they have to have some core principles. And that's what I'm drilling into them week after week after week after week and passing on through them. The older scouts teach the younger scouts and so forth. Um, and and that's, the, that's, the, that's the meat of the program. The, the adventures and stuff are cool, but honestly, when we meet in the library because it's too cold to go down to New Jersey or something, they're almost just as happy because they know that they're getting something of value. Brad, Brad is losing his merit badge and keeping his cell phone turned off right now. <laughs> uh, so that sounds great. I, my son is 27, but I'm actually going to be enrolling him as one of your scouts. I hope that's okay. He, did. <laughs> Definitely, he needs you. I've been a failure as a male role model. I think uh, he's, I'm going to join Brad's troop so I can go count monkeys. But um, uh, I'm going to have my son uh, go and enroll with you. Uh, you're exactly the kind of leader he needs. So um, – one thing we were talking about just during the break here is just technology, all right? I mean, uh, I when I was a Boy Scout, there was actually no technology. No technology had been invented when I was uh, young. So, But it seems somehow today, you know, in, in getting this post-millennial generation that's coming through, you, you have to do that somehow, right? So some of the merit badges, some of the activities have to be technologically or STEM, as you say, oriented, Brad? Yeah, it's uh, – well, the Boy Scouts have a whole program in STEM, uh, science, technology, engineering, and math. And and they have a lot of merit badges that are set up so that you can pursue that. And if it's robotics that's your interest, you can do that. If you uh, decide that you want to get involved in um, different types of environmental uh, sciences, you can do that. So the, the Boy Scouts uh, add badges every year, and they add them kind of as a reflection of what's going on in society. On the other hand, one of the things a lot of troops do is when we go out into the woods, uh, we either um, – 
take the cell phones away and say you've got to be in the woods if you're going to be in the woods, or we go to places where cell phones don't work. Uh, and more often than not, it's the latter, and uh, and that works out pretty well. But to disconnect a kid from his cell phone is uh, both remarkable for the parents, but it's also remarkable for the kid because all of a sudden he has to actually talk to the people that are standing next to him, not just text them. Yeah. That actually sounds like a really good idea, too. Actually, there are a lot of adults you could take on those trips, too. <laughs> Who and I think I live with one actually, but um, uh, all right. So um, we've been getting some calls in here. I didn't even give the number out, so let me just uh, take a call here from Steve somewhere in Connecticut. Hi, Steve. You're on the air. Hey, um, say so, yeah, I, I just wanted to comment on the uh, earlier in the show. You were talking about the uh, changes in the program for, uh, uh, I guess, a more religious bent or something, and um, I guess it concerns me a little bit. My son has all his. Uh, his uh, ranks, and he's just starting to work on his Eagle Scout. And just this week, I heard that uh, uh, one of the other guys was asking me if I knew any priests, because he, he, as well as my family, aren't particularly religious, but, you know, they've always been taught to uh, respect people and and just be a good person and and all this other stuff uh, to be a good citizen. And, you know, you help people out, not because you're going to get some rewards some later, you're just going to do that because that's what you're supposed to do. So I'm a little concerned that is he going to, you know, have trouble working on his Eagle Scout uh, badge and, and uh, rank if he doesn't have that particular religious background. You know, I'm going to ask both of these guys about this. I got an email also from a, a young man that I, I know pretty well today who was very active in the Scouts as a boy. And then ultimately he was on track to become an Eagle Scout. He left it not because he wouldn't have managed to qualify on the basis of some of these things, but because it just sort of bothered him. And he was saying, and this is a guy that you would absolutely want as a scoutmaster or some other kind of uh, figure within uh, within a troop, that as he gets older and, you know, starts to have kids and stuff like that, he'd love to be active in the Scouts, but he's still not that comfortable with this religious requirement. It bothers him. And so, Brad, you know, you, I think you said you listened to yesterday's show. We talked a little bit yesterday about how uh, uh, people in their um, 20s, this, the millennials are coming through, and and they, a lot of them, more, more, more of them than ever have before, and I'm sure this is true of post-millennials too, identify either as not having any particular religious affiliation or being agnostics, humanists, uh, atheists. Is this something where maybe the Boy Scouts are going to have to ch- make one more change at some point? Uh, it's a discussion, but it's, it's not a discussion at the national level uh, is my understanding. Um, it, it's not uncomfortable for most of us that are in the troops because if you come into Boy Scouts, you understand through the Scout Law and the Scout Oath that you have a duty to God. Mm-hmm. And so if you're about to do your Eagle Project and you've been in Scouts a long time, you've raised your hand, you've put your fingers up in the Scout sign, and you've said, I will do my duty to God, and a Scout is reverent, part of the Scout Law. So if you've been doing that for six or seven years and all of a sudden it dawns on you that you're not um, – that you're not reverent to any god, then um, you 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 may have run into a bit of a problem. But I, I f- for most of our guys, um, it's not an issue. Uh, they uh, the Boy Scouts doesn't tell you what god to believe in. They just tell you you need to believe in a higher power. And as long as you're willing to do that and say the Scout at Law and the Scout Oath, that's sufficient. How, how does this look to you, Rashid? I know you're, I think your troop is run out of the Mohammed Islamic Center in Hartford. Right. How does the requirement look to you? I, would, I don't know. Would it even make sense for there to be the occasional troop for the non-believer? 
Well, yeah, I mean, for our troop, we definitely, and this kind of, actually, I think this even ties back to the LGBTQ question, because it's all about diversity and inclusion, mm-hmm. right? Um, yesterday, with the person who was an atheist but was following the walk of Jesus, I think it's, I think it's important to be able to understand that each religion, each, uh, each religion and creed has its own way to help us to identify what is righteous or what is good or what is uh, helps us to get along with our brothers and sisters in humanity. So when I talk to the scouts or I talk to the parents about duty to God, just because I am Muslim doesn't mean that I'm looking for anyone else to be Muslim. If they have a duty to God and they see God as the universe, if they see God as uh, some spiritual being, if they see God as themselves, um, they need to understand what that means and be able to ask that questions and be introspective and, and create awareness about that so that they can they can bring that to the table to their brothers and sisters and be able to have that have that discussion and learn and and be taught even even myself I'm learning from the children I'm learning from the parents and we all have to be able to have that humility to learn from each other um all right we're going to take a, another little break here uh, we'll talk more to Brad and to Rashid we're also going to talk uh, about uh, some of the changes. Some Actually, we're going to talk to some people, one person from an alternative group, a group that decided to be, well, I mean, not even just Boy Scouts. Today's show was produced by Alex Dubin, who has a merit badge in postmodern German literature, Jonathan McPants, who has a merit badge for toilet design, and me. I have a merit badge, and apparently we can't say that on the radio, or do that in the Boy Scouts. The part of Bill Curry was played by John Tesh. You can find the audio for all of our shows at wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, the nose goes rogue one and recaps the year in culture. And now... Back to Colin. That's right. Tomorrow in the news, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, Rogue One, the new Star Wars movie, which everybody on the panel and the producer, Jonathan McNichols, saw it like last Saturday or Sunday. And I've been waiting because I wanted to see it with my friend Greg Butler. And our schedules merged perfectly for like late this afternoon. <laughs> so there's been 75 incredibly geeked out Star Wars emails for the show, none of which I've been uh, allowed to read because they're spoilers. Uh, anyway, tomorrow, that'll be tomorrow. We're going to talk about the year in culture. You should hear these guys, these two scoutmasters talking off the air. They're like networking. Uh, they're talking about some kinds of joint projects, maybe getting some inner city kids involved with some uh, suburban kids. And uh, um, Brad wants his kids to have more contact with Muslims. And you, know, you guys, you guys are, you're, you're plotting here, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, you know, the, the problem in Simsbury is it's all white bread. And uh, we, and we were talking before, and Rashid is, dealing with a bunch of inner city kids that are dealing with lots of different challenges than we have in Simsbury. And uh, so um, and and we'd love to do some things together. And uh, and we've got some things that we think we can bring to the table. And and I, and I know our guys would love to do this. It, so. it, this is exciting. So, by the way, every five minutes, somebody uh, texts Brad to say, you know, you're on the radio right now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> At least it's not bothering me. I think it's funny. Don't change it. Don't turn it yeah, off. No, no, but no. Um, all right. So um, 
you know, one thing that we we talked about as we were getting ready to do this show is that, first of all, you know, two things have happened. There have been sort of two ways in which there have been branch offs, I guess you could say, from traditional scouting. Uh, one of them, and it's not going to be represented on the show here today, but post-2013 and 2015, uh, there were some groups that just decided um, they didn't want to be part of uh, of groups that that did uh, allow for either uh, gay scouts or uh, gay adult leaders. Um, so you got uh, there's the main one's called Trail Life USA. It's a Christian scouting group. It was formed in September 2013. Uh, no coincidence there. It was a reaction to the Boy Scouts of America's decision to uh, to end its exclusion of openly gay youth from membership. But there's lots of other groups that are kind of the forking off the other way. There's one called Spiral Scouts International. It's a uh, youth organization based on Wiccan symbolism. There's the Baden-Powell Service Association, which is a co-ed scouting organization that takes its name from uh, Robert Baden-Powell, Lord Robert Baden-Powell, who we talked about in the first segment. Uh, and there's also the one that we're about to uh, visit with here for uh, uh, just a few minutes. Robin Bossert is the founder and executive director of Navigators <coughs> USA. So, Robin, welcome to this conversation. Well, thanks for having me. So tell us about Navigators USA. It's like scout- scouting, but different. How is it different? Yeah, uh, its origins were um, I was the scoutmaster of Troop 103 in East Harlem, which was the first scout uh, group to start in a homeless shelter, and was run by, uh, was paid for by Unitarian Universalist Church um, in the Upper East Side. And we, when uh, when I was a scoutmaster, that's when the Supreme Court said that the Boy Scouts could discriminate like any golf club or any other club, uh, any way they wanted to, and we couldn't be part of that organization. So we switched. We didn't want to. get rid of the babies with bathwater, so we um, started Navigators USA, and since we were starting a new organization, we decided it wasn't going to be Boy Scouts 2.0, it was going to be co-ed, non-discriminatory for atheists, for anyone who um, had problems one way or another with any kind of scouting organization around the country. And it's morphed into not so much uh, a... uh, it's morphed into a, a, a more organic, uh, from the grassroots up type scouting organization to fit different lifestyles in different parts of the country, whatever they want. It's a we're we're, we're structured as a membership service association, which means we don't have a hierarchy. We're not telling chapters we call them chapters instead of troops. Uh, what they should do or shouldn't do. We give them advice, we give them support, and we um, are in constant um, uh, process of growing and changing to meet the needs of different lifestyles throughout the country. So um, so you emphasize diversity, inclusion, uh, group problem solving, your co-ed. Um, you know, when I was a Boy Scout, uh, there were these mottos and creeds and things like that. And I remember saying the words of brave, clean, and reverent. I was like two out of three on my best day, probably. But um, um, the um, how about the navigators? I mean, y- y- as you say, you- you'll accept uh, anybody with any kind of orientation or background. Uh, are-, are there things that you still expect them to adhere to? Is there a code? Yes, there's uh, there's a, uh, the Navigator's Moral Compass, which is, as a navigator, I promise to do my best to create a world free of prejudice and ignorance, to treat people of every race, creed, lifestyle, and ability with dignity and respect, to strengthen our, my body and improve my mind to reach front, my full potential to protect our planet and preserve our freedom. So it's, it's very similar to the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts. Uh, it just takes it, it seems to take it for 
uh, the people that are attracted to that creed um, a, a little bit further than courteous, kind, um, obedient, um, and more in the social justice, um, human rights uh, area. Not that we're an um, advocacy group at all, especially nationally, but we seem to attract people. And again, we have no marketing uh, budget or plan. It's all people Googling us, and we get more people from the Girl Scouts and from the Boy Scouts because programs, the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts programs are terrific. I have, I think they're great, but they sometimes they don't fit the lifestyles. And the Girl Scouts lifestyle, it was designed, our uh, model was designed for women who were at home and had plenty of time. So we're getting burnout from there. Ours is much more flexible and sort of, um, well, it's just whatever they want to put together. We have curriculum and we have T-shirts. We don't have uniforms, so they can just throw a T-shirt on the kid and send them out. They can send both their sons and daughters to the same program. It's um, so yeah. It, it's, it, it's but you still like you go camping and stuff, right? Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, well, our, our main I, focus. That's the other thing yeah. about the Girl Scouts is that a lot of the Girl Scout uh, troops don't really do anything out in the woods, and our whole thing is about getting kids outdoors. The American child spends seven hours on average in front of a screen and seven minutes outdoors. So any organization that can get kids outdoors is a really important organization because all those organizations have been going have been declining since the mid-70s, and we've got to stop that. Yeah, no, that sounds, uh, and I saw what you did there with the moral compass. Uh, that's a, a great concept. Um, so there are some chapters here in Connecticut, right? I see that there are chapters in Manchester and Meriden. I don't know. By, by the way, did you, do you, have you memorized that whole moral compass thing, or were you reading it off a card? Because oh, it's I long. Memorized. I wrote it, I figured I memorized you wrote it, it and, and that's, the only, that's the only requirement we have is we want every kid in this country to have a, a, a moral compass like that and yeah. have it memorized. All right, so Navigators USA, and there are chapters here in Connecticut. People can find them. I see them in Manchester and Meriden. Um, and, and so I want to thank you for joining us. It's uh, interesting to know about alternatives. That's uh, Robin Bossert, uh, founder and executive director of Navigators USA. I want to come back to here. We just got a few minutes left here at the end uh, with uh, Rashid and Brad, our two scoutmasters. So, you know, one thing, well, I got a bunch of emails from just people who emailed me because they heard from the promo that we were doing this show, and they all had kind of interesting things to say. One guy made this point. I hadn't really thought about it, but it really brings true for me, at least for my Boy Scout troop in the 60s. That Another thing that the Boy Scout troop does is I think sometimes we have, you know, these pretty limited models within the school system and peer groups for how you excel, right? You, you excel, you know, in the modern public high school if uh, you're a good athlete uh, or if you're a Mr. Popular. Uh, or if you're, you know, a genius, if you've got 800 SATs. And that's, that's hardly anybody. Hardly anybody fits those models. It's a small group of people. And it does seem like one of the things, and I want you both to comment on this, but, but, but Rashid, maybe you can go first. One thing the Boy Scouts seems to do is say, there's like a lot of stuff you could be good at. You know, there's a lot of ways that you could be good. There's a lot of things that you could learn how to do that maybe fall out of these pretty narrow rubrics that exist within public schools or, or any place else. You tend to get your validation as a human being in this world. So I don't know. Maybe you want to comment on that? Sure. So excelling is important. I mean, uh, being, being corporate and, and going through school, I understand the importance of acceleration. Uh, but for, for my scouts, for the scouts that I have and the ones that are looking to join our troop, it's not about excelling as much as it is being whole. They come from a lot of 
uh, obstacles throughout their lives, whether they're they're um, orphans or immigrants or refugees and so forth and so on. And throughout the world, throughout history, um, whether it's been China, Japan, uh, Kenya, uh, South Africa, there's always been a rites of passage. And that's something that, that Boy Scouts can be a vehicle for, um, even, even so much so that I've heard the story, and I, again, this one, I don't know if it's fully true, but I heard the story that Baden-Powell, when he died in Kenya, before that, he had been doing campaigns as a general throughout Africa. Mm. And one place he had came was to the Zulu Nation. And he was, he was so enamored by their soldiers and by their warriors that he asked and he inquired, what did they do? Or how did they become such strong warriors, so strong and, and, and solid and, and confident within themselves and within their brotherhood? And they told him about the righteous passage of the Zulu men and the Zulu warriors. Um, and that was his uh, influence or his, his inspiration to take that back to England. That, now, I don't know if that's a true story or not, but that's one thing I've heard over time. And, and it it's just resounds how important it is for young men and women because we also have uh, – we're, we're nicknamed the Bilalians, Bilalian Scouts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have Bilalian Boy Scouts, Bilalian Girl Scouts. And it's so important for them to be able to have that rise of passage that gives them a sense of identity mm-hmm. so that they can know who they are and, and know yourself and know your community so you can know your purpose in life. It's a great point. I, I just uh, point out, historically, British Empire, not always so great to the Zulus, because I'll get emails. Uh, so, but anyway, um, so Brad, unfortunately, we only got about 30, 40 seconds left here. But I, I'm sure you want to elaborate, too. Yeah, well, John Muir, the famous environmentalist, said we go into the woods to learn about ourselves. And, and one of the great things that Scouts does, it allows boys to go into the woods, to get dirty, get wet, um, to, to experience a whole series of adventures that they may or may not really fully appreciate at the time. And they do it with their buddies. And when they come out of the woods, they've learned a lot about independence. They've learned how to, you know, make a shelter. They've learned how to start a fire, learn how to do a lot of things. And that independence, coupled with the leadership that goes on when they go into the woods, uh, it's something unique. And, uh, and more boys need to do it. That's a great point. All right. Thanks. You guys are great. Thank you. Uh, thanks so much uh, to Brad Mead and Rashid Ali. Uh, we are going to say goodbye. Uh, but thanks to everybody who worked on this show, especially Alex Dubin. He came back and uh, helped us get organized. To do your good deeds when there's no one watching you. If you're looking for adventure of a new and different kind, and you come across a Girl Scout who is similarly inclined, don't be nervous, don't be flustered, don't be scared. Be prepared. John Tesh, how did you get the last merit badge to become an Eagle Scout? I got an idea in the middle of the night and uh, didn't have any, you know, recording materials or machines with me or even any manuscript paper. And I just sang, huh. 